0: Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda.
1: This week on The Agenda, time for a digital detox from video games to social media addiction. Is the online world hurting our mental health? How many times a day do you check your phone? Five? Ten? Most of us check our phones more than 50 times a day. On average, we spend almost seven hours of our day looking at a screen like our phone. That's equivalent to more than 100 days of the year. Welcome to the attention economy, where big tech companies make apps increasingly addictive. The platforms get us hooked by exploiting our brain's dopamine response, serving us customized content to keep us clicking, watching, and scrolling for more. Some of these companies are starting to realize that users increasingly want to take back control of their screen time. So rather than lose them completely, the tech giants are starting to allow people to customize their user experience. Like video platform TikTok, now letting users set daily screen time limits. The pandemic played a part in the uptick in screen time, especially when video calls and texting became the only ways to connect and check in with friends in lockdowns. But it was becoming a trend even before then. Having our phones, laptops, smartwatches, and tablets constantly within reach has made us hyper connected but it's also making us hyper distracted. One study says it takes around 23 minutes to return to the deep focus we had on a task. In fact, productivity can fall by as much as 40% due to mental blocks caused by distracting devices. Just like tobacco and alcohol use, screen time can become an addiction that can damage our health and relationships. In China, under 18s are limited to one hour of playing video games on weekends following a new law introduced last summer. Off-grid detox retreats, where all tech is banned, are now more popular than ever. The digital drain is real. The question is, can we fix it? Concerns over online addiction were front and centre at this year's G20 summits in Indonesia. The Y20, the youth movement in the organisation, are calling for the introduction of a digital well-being charter by 2023, which they hope will protect children from the dangers online. Well, let's get more on this and speak to China's Y20 delegate, Shu Yikai. Talk us through what the Y20 digital transformation track really is. I mean, Did you see yourselves as... Agents of change in today's era of digital transformation?
2: Um, The digital transformation track is actually a part of this year's Y20, um, one of the four tracks. And um, In this track, um, we discussed the critical issues influencing our digital and living experiences today from digital infrastructure and digital literacy to, um, say, digital governance and digital financial technologies. Um, We had delegates from different countries and different industries and every one of us had a different perspective on digital transformation. Um, Some focused on basic internet connections and others may find, uh, say, mental health critical and would like to contribute more to that part. Um, Generally speaking, this is a very diverse track and we cooperated to find solutions to digital transformation problems from technical issues to, say, human rights. And, of course, um, we believe we can be agents of change in this era.
1: It's interesting you talk about the diversity and and sometimes differences of opinion. So it's interesting then that one of your key proposals was to create this digital well-being charter as early as next year. I mean, that must have been quite tricky. What's it going to look like and how tricky will it be to actually put into practice?
2: Um, Yes, Uh, so um, this digital webbing charter we are looking forward to will mainly take care of people's um, emotional, mental, social and um, uh, physical health during their interactions with digital services. So as we can see, um, the digital transformation brought with it not only impressive progress in living standards, but also unprecedented problems regarding people's physical and mental spheres. So we appear to have a G20 digital webbing charter that outlines principles protecting human beings in this digital era, including say mental health, suicide prevention, um, prohibition of cyber extortion, child safety, um, maybe um, consumer protection and providing digital webbing services that are um, affordable, accessible. Um, confidential, age-appropriate and inclusive, um, quoting the original text of our communique. (laughs) So these points should be highlighted and be the core of this charter. We hope that this um, G20 Webin charter can be established as soon as possible, preferably next year. It should be a charter agreed upon uh, by all G20 countries, and should be implemented across all G20 countries. The implementation may take longer time and the exact time frame shall be discussed and maybe during the drafting of this charter. But I believe as long as we have this charter, progress will be made steadily and we can implement this charter in the next decade. And I I think that that will be a great success.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? Because your generation was born into a a fledgling digital ecosystem, which has kind of become an always online world and technology is moving so fast and that technology, as you've said, influences um, our mental health. How might you and I tweak the way we interact with social media, um, how we study and and how we work to to maybe protect our mental health online?
2: Um, Actually, I think there are many general practices that we can perform in our daily lives to protect our mental health and others. Um, for example, I believe we should always remember respect when using the Internet. When people tweet, um, post or comment online, we know that some others, the public, uh, will read our texts. However, we tend to forget each individual person in this process. Um, like what, what we have in mind is only the abstract public. When we forget real individual people, we often forget the respect that we naturally practice in our face-to-face communication. So I think as students, we can conduct research on online mental health to uncover the mechanism of online violence and find solutions to it.
1: Sounds like you're saying start with being a a lot more mindful about what... We do individually online, but what digital wellbeing services um, would you like to see? And who do you think should be providing them? Should it be government? Should it be the private sector or or maybe a combination?
2: So uh, for your first question, I think a very good example of digital wellbeing services is um, online psychological counselling services. People can receive immediate help with their mental problems. Um, This can be very important when it comes to issues such as um, suicide prevention. Another example is um, online learning services. Currently, we already have some online learning platforms such as Coursera, but I don't think they have penetrated enough in this digital era. Many underdeveloped regions still do not have affordable access to online learning services. Ensuring these services can help upskill and reskill people who don't have such opportunities and improve their well being. And for your second question, Um, Of course, we need a combination of public sectors and private players to provide digital webbing services. Um, What governments should do is more about ensuring the affordability and accessibility of digital webbing services to everyone, as well as a um, healthy market environment for competition. Um, this depends on the actual situation of every country. Some uh, may find it useful to let the public sector offer baseline digital wellbeing services, uh, while others may believe that governments should employ other methods to guarantee that people can access affordable services. Um, on the other hand, private sector should be encouraged to develop and um, provide digital wellbeing services to the public because uh, private sectors are generally more flexible than the public sector so they have great potential in promote people's digital wellbeing being in the future.
1: Now we, we've been looking at some of the, the negative impacts um, of the digital space but there's a great deal of benefit too and I know you've touched a little bit on this in, t- in terms of education um, and that knowledge that wealth of knowledge that's out there um, but access and affordability though that those um, those are tricky, aren't they? It's not—they're not equitable. It's not universal. Many countries still struggling, you know, with adequate digital pr- provision. So, what steps do you think can be taken to address that and unleash the potential of digital transformation everywhere?
2: This is also an, an area that many wide 20 delegates cared about, especially delegates from developing countries, including myself. Um, during our negotiation, we proposed a lot of ideas to ensure basic digital infrastructure and digital literacy. We affirmed at the start of our communique that Internet access is a fundamental right of people. We called to achieve last mile connectivity and address the cost barrier to, um, f- to connectivity for marginalized communities. So possible actions include maybe cooperating the usage of fiber optic, satellites, and uh, secular infrastructure alongside innovative and efficient spectrum utilization and concession models. We proposed that governments should re-evaluate tariff and non-tariff barriers limiting trade in critical digital devices um, that support meaningful connectivity. We also appeared that societies integrate digital literacy development programs into their formal and informal education curriculums to encourage inclusive, lifelong and um, substantial participation of marginalized communities in the economy and the society.
1: Shuyukai, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
1: The average child starts using a smartphone when they're just 10 years old. And in the UK, 91% of 11-year-olds now have one of their own. The World Health Organization says people of all ages should be replacing screen time with face-to-face interaction, exercise and sleep. How easy is it really to switch off? Let's ask Dr Daria Cuss, she's the Associate Professor in Psychology at Nottingham Trent University. Now, our phones, Dr Daria, can be so distracting. I mean, My life is a constant scrolling through politics and sunsets and shoes. Uh, sometimes it's a pick-me-up, sometimes it's a downer. How do we know how to distinguish between the good and the bad?
0: Sometimes it appears really difficult to be able to distinguish between the good and the bad, especially because we've become so habituated to use our phones at all times, really. When waiting for the bus, when standing in the queue at the supermarket, any empty minute is now filled with scrolling through our phones. And sometimes we don't realize that perhaps some of the content that we may be scrolling through is indeed not particularly good for us, not particularly healthy for us, especially when we now think about the case of molly which has been on the news quite a lot recently Uh, we have seen that this young teenager in the uk unfortunately as a consequence of using technology, using her smartphone to access social media, has been exposed to very damaging content, which in the end has led her to take her own life with a very, very sad situation. So, and I think, you know, also in the context of Mental Health Day, it really gives us an indication that it's really important to ensure that the content that we're engaging with online, on our smartphones, on our social media, is indeed beneficial. I think one of the things that we can do in order to be able To distinguish what's good from what's bad online maybe just to reflect on our own experience to observe how it makes us feel to observe our body our our physical being what it does in our body what kinds of emotions might be coming up and what kinds of thoughts might be coming up and i think if we are becoming a little bit more reflective about our experiences we may be much more able to actually differentiate the good
1: from the bad a lot of conversations tend to focus around teenagers, um, teenagers spending too much time on their phones. Um, isn't this a problem though that affects everyone who's on, on social media, who's got a connected device?
0: Problematic technology use can potentially affect everybody. We know that uh, younger people tend to be more enthusiastic adopters of technology. For them, technology use tends to be more important to a certain extent. However, if we, as as adults, were also just to check our technology use, check our smartphones that give us an indication about how much time we spend on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on particular apps. We very often will find that actually it's not just the young people, but perhaps also ourselves who may be spending too much time on our devices.
1: Now, research suggests that too much screen time can lead to some psychological problems, anxiety, depression, loneliness. On the other hand, those might be the things that lead people to spend more time and overuse their devices in the first place.
0: Yes, absolutely. So uh, one of the questions that we need to ask with uh, research is the causality and the direction of the relationship. So what comes first? Is it poor mental health or is it actually the technology use itself? What we found in our work really is that those um, relationships are interdependent. There may be some loneliness. Uh, present in an individual who tends to use their social media more and then increased social media use may then negatively impact on their loneliness experience and their depression. So really what you're doing is to put into motion um, a negative cycle of behaviors and experiences, which is something that we try and break if we can.
1: You're talking about me more reflective uh, and looking at the warning signs to maybe when you're being drawn in or, or, or feeling hooked. So can a digital detox separating ourselves from our technology really help or is that just a short term fix?
0: I think it's healthy and it's good for your well-being if you're able to take a break from technology use and it's easier done when you're changing your everyday environment. For example if you're going away for the weekend or if you're going on a holiday for a week or two.
1: But is taking a break from technology good for business? I mean this is after all the attention economy. You know, Companies are motivated by keeping our attention so won't digital detox affect revenue streams?
0: Well, you could you could hypothesize that perhaps revenue streams may be impacted by a digital detox. However, I would argue that actually people who are using the technology in a more conscious way, they are more aware of what they're using, they're more aware of the services and the products that they're purchasing, may be significantly happier customers and may actually develop loyalty to a brand, for example, which I'm sure is something that the, um, the industry really is keen to, to see.
1: What about instead of digital detox, we have regular digital
0: checkups? I always advocate digital checkups. What I would recommend to do is just check your phone, have a look at what kind of, uh, how much time you're spending on what kinds of apps during the day, during the week, and then based on this, you may realize that, oh, perhaps your time on Instagram is a little bit high, perhaps your time on email is a little bit high. Maybe this gives you an incentive and an impetus really to change your behaviors and to reduce that time.
1: Everything we're talking about is about the individual user and making individual decisions, but could the social media companies maybe do more and use their behavioural data a bit differently?
0: I'm a very strong advocate of a multi-stakeholder approach where researchers can work together with the technology users who work together with governments and the industry. This is crucial. So far, we have seen limited engagement of the industry, the social media industry, for example, with actual researchers or with the public in terms of sharing their data. And this is highly problematic. So I would very strongly encourage anybody working within the industry to ensure that uh, they are, their working practices are more transparent and that the data are actually being shared.
1: That's people working within the industry. Uh, What about governments? Because different countries are doing different things, aren't they, to tackle the scourge of screen time? Talk us through who's doing what.
0: We see different actions being taken across the world in terms of governments supporting healthy technology use and increasing awareness and prevention initiatives for problematic use as well. So we know, for example, that in Southeast Asian countries, there are a number of very good strategies that have been developed over the last two decades already, whereas here in Europe, we are seeing the emergence of such strategies.
1: But can we really push back uh, against all of this technology that, that, that hijacks our attention? Uh, and, and also do we need to? Because there are lots of benefits uh, for, for, from being online. Yes, of course, there are millions of ways to, to waste time, but it's also a source of information, um, education, literally in the palm of your hand.
0: Technology use is the status quo. This is how we live our lives today. And therefore, I would never advocate a technology-free kind of a life because I think it's not realistic. Instead, what we want to do is to use it in in an aware kind of a way, in a conscious way, knowing what it it is that we want to do with technology and how technology can support our lives. Dr. Dario Kass,
1: thank you very much. Thank you. A law to set screen time limits – does china have the real answer to digital addiction china has an increasingly strict policy when it comes to online gaming last year a curfew was introduced limiting teenagers to only playing between 8 and 9 p.m on weekends and holidays many parents welcome it but is the approach working joining me now to discuss this is dr ravi chen postdoctoral research fellow at the libertal rogel center for chinese studies at the University of Michigan. Thanks for coming on the programme. So how serious is internet addiction in China?
3: Yeah, uh, so it depends on what you define internet addiction. Uh, So if you are thinking about internet addiction as a phenomenon, No, it's not really that serious because, you know, everybody is online these days and you can't be not really addicted to your internet. Uh, But you were talking about internet addiction as a clinical category, uh, which means that in China, there are... Uh, millions of uh, young people who spend excessive time on their um, online games that worries their parents. So they send them to the clinics for treatment and that is something that is really concerning I think the majority of Chinese parents.
1: Now the Chinese gaming industry as you mentioned is uh, you know, the biggest in the world. There are more than 700 million gamers um, there and it's a particular area of concern um, in China. So. How are gaming fans reacting to to the new policy that limits the time they've got online?
3: Yeah, I think it uh, also depends on um, what kind of uh, uh, city levels or and kind of access that you have to, you know, the international game market. So the current, uh, the so-called curfew uh, is only targeted at the domestic games. It means that, um, you know, if you are only playing those popular games that are sold domestically, such as um, the, of, uh, the the Vela of, of, uh, of Heroes, um, so that that would say you know you you could you, you could be uh, liable to, uh, to 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 some restrictions when you're playing with your own ID. Um, but according to my uh, interviews with parents and uh, and 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 the, the students, it's actually easy uh, for them to access games that are sold internationally. For example, in the platform uh, called. Uh, 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 steam and then they could actually download and purchase the games easily there and then play other types of games that are not restricted and then they could also for example if they negotiate with their parents the parents could register the game accounts with their own ids which is an adult id and then that was not kind of restricted in terms of the, the playing time
1: As a parent of teenagers, I know full well about those workarounds that that you're talking about. But what about the the major gaming companies? I mean, what are they doing? What what more could they do? I'm thinking about Tencent, NetEase, big Chinese gaming firms like that.
3: Yeah, I think they, they are heavily um, influenced by these curfew policies. Uh, but then uh, I think according to their own reports, um, because the majority of the gamers may not be those under 18 years old. So, so they, they, they think that they're, they're still fine. And then they also have this overseas gaming market. That means uh, they could also target as teenagers in other countries. And then hopefully they could also profit from that.
1: Well, earlier you, you talked about some of the, the clinics that parents send their children to, they think they're getting addicted to gaming or they're, they're, they're too um, busy with it. But there's been a bit of a scandal, hasn't there, with some of these centres in China using electroshock therapy. I know that was back in 2006, but I wonder if that is still an issue, if they still exist or if there have been some changes.
3: I um, actually was a very singular case, um, though it's very eye-catching that they use electric shock, but uh, even when I was conducting my field work back in 2014, electric shock was not uh, popularly used. It's just only maybe one center that uh, used that. The majority of the centers of treatment of internet addiction, um, they did not only actually treat internet addiction, they treat uh, all sorts of Uh, of uh, kind of, we we call it use delinquency or use disorders. And for example, um, you know, they could be just people who refuse to go to school, who are rebellious, who join gangs, who, you know, have all sorts of kind of adolescent issues and they might have um, addiction to games. But then, you know, most of them are actually having this as their major problem. They have other issues, uh, and, and their self understanding, and then their uh, emotions are being um, kind of uh, intervened through those psycho uh, therapeutic de- like like techniques. Um, but then um, the the treatment camp that I worked for uh, at that time, and I I, I started there, so uh, um, it was actually. Um not, not just using these two techniques, they're using family therapy too. They ask the parents to stay and because they think uh, the internet addiction is you know in the root cause, it's still family communication issues and then parenting issues. So they will try to make sure that the parents after this you know after these teenagers go home, the parents are still able to handle them in a psychologically healthy way.
1: Coming up on a future agenda. Britain's sailor shame. We'll hear the story of the Chinese merchant seamen forced from their families after the Second World War. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.